This episode is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash best for your free audiobook download. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, This American Life, The Colbert Report, Tom Hartman, and Rachel Maddow. Let's talk about the atheist uh, summer camp. So uh, there's a company called Camp Quest, uh, and they have created this secular camp that has uh, obviously nothing to do with uh, the typical Christian stuff that goes on in summer camps. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this, but there are a lot of um, Christian references and camp songs and things like that, and Camp Quest uh, seeks to get rid of that. Yeah, I didn't know that either, uh, partly because I've never gone camping. Uh, when I was a little kid, I was the one that was left out. and. Um, I just sit at home with my uh, mom and watch General Hospital all summer long, mm-hmm. while the cool kids went to camp. But uh, now that I know that they were indoctrinating them with, uh, you know, uh, Jesus brainwashing, now uh, you know what? Luke and Laura on the cast design not so bad. Okay, I'll take it. No, I literally didn't know. Another thing I didn't know is apparently a lot of the summer camps are run by Mormons. Right. Okay, so who knew that? I don't, maybe that's what Glenn Beck went to when he got converted. I don't know. So. Uh, in this atheist summer camp, they do some interesting exercises. One of the ones is the mythical unicorn, I'm sorry, the invisible unicorn challenge, where uh, they introduce campers to logical fallacies by offering them the challenge of disproving the existence of two invisible unicorns that roam the campsite. Now, as a, I have to be honest, as an agnostic, I love that. <laughs> okay. Now, they're like, hey, look, you can t- tell your kids, you know, Jesus is your Lord and Savior or Yahweh or Mohammed or whatever you got going on. Why can't I tell my kids to be logical? We're going to send them to a camp where they learn logic and show that it's ridiculous to try to disprove invisible unicorns that don't exist, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, guess what's happened? Religious folks are offended. But wait a minute, it ain't your kids. It's my kids. Okay, and if I want to send them to that camp, mm-hmm. I'm not offended that you teach your kids that they're going to heaven and my kids aren't. So why are you offended at my uni- invisible unicorn challenge? They're offended at the unicorn because the unicorn is supposed to symbolize God. And they feel like, we didn't say they feel like this camp is kind of belittling their religion. So, I mean, they have a right to be offended, but they definitely don't have the right to ask for this camp to be shut down or anything. <laughs> I mean, what business is it of theirs? I mean, if they can brainwash their kids into things that don't make sense, why can't we teach, or whatever you want to call it, you want to call it brainwashing, our kids into things that do make sense? Well, why would you get offended? <laughs> I mean, they, but the absurdity is that they are getting mad because you're teaching your kids logic. Okay, you can't get mad at that. No, they're not getting mad at that. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to defend, you know, the Christians or whatever, or the Mormons here, but they're getting mad because it seems like this atheist summer camp is purposely kind of making fun of their religion. So they're not cool with that, okay? And, you know, you're basically saying, well, who cares what they say? It's none of their business. Why would you get mad when Debbie Schlussel was talking shit about Muslims? You know, uh-huh. it's, it's kind of the same thing. Ooh, wang, 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 Debbie Schlussel reference. Okay. <laughs> no, but look, I, I don't, I really don't think that they're, they're, Intent is to be like na 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 na. What do you think about that Mormon camp? <laughs> right? I think their intent is this is what I want to teach my kids. Mm-hmm. I don't have any kids, but if I did, uh, I, I'd put some thought behind sending him to this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that obnoxious? I don't think it's obnoxious. I don't think it's obnoxious at all. But then at the same time, I feel like atheism is turning into a religion. Mm-hmm. Do you get that sense no, at all? People say that, and I know a lot of people think that, and I think it's a totally legitimate point of view. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think so. I think they're sticking up for themselves. Mm-hmm. In the public sphere, they have been absolutely steamrolled. When it comes to politics or, or policy, oh, of course, they are completely disrespected, ignored, and I think they've had enough. And they're saying, hey, you know what? You know, everybody keeps telling us that we're unacceptable and that we're not as American, and people do say that, and that we're going to hell and going to get tortured forever. Can I not speak up for myself a little bit? Mm-hmm. And I could definitely, you know understand that feeling so and in fact I support that uh, now this is a little different it's not politics it's kids but you got a right to teach your kids whatever the hell you want to teach them especially if it's things that are sensible right go forward move forward I'd like to cook some s'mores with you know uh, atheists at that camp hello mother 
Hello, Fada. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey. He developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner. He got ptomaine poisoning last night after dinner. All the counselors hate the waiters. And the lake has alligators. And the head coach wants no sissies. So he reads to us from something called Ulysses. God agrees to postpone the apocalypse until after Christmas. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. In response to pressure from Walmart and Amazon.com today, God has agreed to move the end of the world from December 13th to, quote, sometime after the new year. Brandon Mace of Urban Outfitters says the loss of pre-holiday sales by major retail chains would be disastrous. In order for us to remain competitive for the rest of the year, you know, we need to have a good Christmas season. After bowing to the economic pressure, God placed humanity on notice, vowing eternal winter unless the Easter Bunny is brought before him in chains. Doyle Redland for the Onion. beginning, when Adam was first created, he spent whole days rubbing his face in the grass. He picked his ear until it bled, tried to fit his fist in his mouth, and yanked out tufts of his own hair. At one point, he tried to pinch his own eyes out in order to examine them, and God had to step in. Looking down at Adam, God must have felt a bit weird about the whole thing. It must have been something like eating at a cafeteria table all by yourself when a stranger suddenly sits down opposite you. But it's a stranger who you have created, and he is eating a macaroni salad that you have also created. And you have been sitting at the table all by yourself for over a hundred billion years. And yet still, you have nothing to talk about. It was pitiful the way Adam looked up into the sky and squinted. Before he created Adam, God must have been lonely. Now, he was still lonely, and so was Adam. Then came Eve. Since the Garden of Eden was the very first village, and since every village needs a mayor as well as a village idiot, it broke down in this way. Eve, mayor. Adam, village idiot. And that is the way it was from the very beginning. Sometimes, when Adam would start to speak, Eve would get all hopeful that he was about to impart something important and smart. But he would only say stuff like, little things are really great because you could put them in your hand as well as in your mouth. Eve would ponder how one minute she was not there or anywhere, and now she was. Adam would ponder nothing. In her dreams, Eve danced in the tops of trees. Her beautiful thoughts flew out of her ears and lit up the sky like fireflies. And there were all kinds of people to talk to and hug. And then she would hear snoring. She would wake up and there would be Adam, his yokel face pressed right against hers, his dog food breath blowing right up her nostrils. Eve stared up at the sky. Adam draped his arm across her chest and brought his knee up onto her stomach. God, watching in heaven, feared for Adam's broken heart as though the whole universe depended on it. Adam was close to the animals and spent all day talking to them. Except for God, Eve had no one. She would complain to the Lord any chance she got. Adam is a nimrod, she would say, and the Lord would remain silent. 
God was the best and all that, and she loved the hell out of him. But when it came to trash talk, he was of no use. Adam was constantly trying to impress her. Look what I have made, he said one bright morning, his hands cupped together. Eve looked into his hands. She pulled away and shrieked. Adam was holding giraffe feces. I've sculpted it, said Adam. It is for the Lord. He opened his hands wide to reveal to her a tiny little giraffe with a crooked neck. On some days, Adam galloped about exploring. His hair was wiry, and when it got sweaty, it hung down in his eyes. Adam was cute this way. On one such day, he saw a snake. Adam made the snake's acquaintance by accidentally stepping on his back. Wow, that's smart, said the snake through gritted teeth. Their eyes locked, and in that very moment, the snake concluded that, indeed, Adam was a lummox, and that as king of the earth, his reign would very soon end. There was a new sheriff in town, and it was he. It was no longer the story of Adam, but the story of the snake. He could tell all of this just by simply looking into his idiot eyes. I've seen you around with another one like you, he said to Adam. But instead of the dead legless snake between the legs, she has chaos there. That's Eve, said Adam, all animated. I named her that myself. God made her from out of my rib. He showed the snake the scar on his side. The snake looked at Adam in silence. The idea of Adam, Adam the Schlemiel, Adam the Fool, being God's favorite, was enough to give the snake a migraine. You aren't at all like I imagined, the snake said. I thought you'd be closer to the ground, more pliant, greener. I tried to explain to God that to make you balanced up on your hind legs was architecturally unsound. I don't know why I bother. Adam sat and listened wide-eyed. Eve hadn't the patience to sit and chat like this, so when the snake suggested they get into the habit of meeting every once in a while to talk, Adam was very excited to do so. As they lazed on their backs staring up at the sky, the snake would brag about how he was older than the whole world and that he used to pal around with God in the dark, back before creation. He said that in the darkness it was a truer, freer time, that in the darkness was the good old days. He told Adam that back in the very beginning, he had all kinds of thoughts on how to make the Garden of Eden a better place, but that God was just too stubborn to listen to reason. Make the earth out of sugar, I told him. Instead of stingers, give bees lips they can kiss you with. Adam didn't always agree with the snake. In fact, a lot of what the snake said went straight over his head. But there was still something about him that made him get into a very particular mood. He made the world feel bigger. Sometimes when Adam was with Eve, sitting there in icy silence, he would think to himself, I sure could go for a good dose of snake. You would think that after all the time they spent together, the snake would finally find it within himself to start liking Adam, just a little bit. But instead, he only grew to hate him more. He took to comforting himself with thoughts of Adam's wife, Eve. From what he heard from Adam, she was hot and smart. Often he would imagine running into her and the instant synergy they would have. Adam neglected to tell me how leggy you are, he would say, wrapping himself around her calf. The snake had no idea what he looked like. He was hairless, buck-toothed, four inches tall, and he spoke with a lisp. Adam had the IQ of a coconut husk, but he was still human. The snake, in his arrogance, was unable to grasp this, and so he daydreamed. Sometimes I'd think you were watching me, the snake imagined, saying to Eve, because I felt like there were ribbons wrapped around me, ribbons made of raw pork intestines. I would turn around to catch you sneaking a peek at me from behind a tree, but all I'd see were the hedgehogs which mocked me. Come, my dear, let us eat from the tree of knowledge.
remember a banana in the Garden of Eden? Please welcome Robert Wright. Hey, Mr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us. All right, sir, I got a beef with you here. The evolution of God? I mean, your, your book, right off the bat, has been panned by a very influential critic. God, okay? He's not an evolutionist. He's the original creationist. What do you mean evolution of God? Well, God is and never shall be in a world without end. Amen. That's it. God. God's a constant. That's, that's one view. That's um, the view. That's the view. Okay. All else is heresy. Okay. Uh, okay. Thank you for coming. Okay. Thank you so much. I didn't mean to give up that easily. I didn't realize. So I'm not, I'm not talking about biological evolution, first of all. I'm talking about the evolution of the idea of God. So, like, starting back in hunter-gatherer days when every society believed there were a lot of gods and they weren't especially nice, mm -hmm. you eventually get to a point where much of the world believes there's one God and embodies good and is omnipotent. So that's, you know, something has changed. Right. Our god came on the scene and kicked a little butt that's... and kicked, <laughs> kicked all those other gods out of there, right? Well, he won in the end, yeah. He but, sure did. Uh, yeah. So there must, Go have been, team. must have been something. Yeah. It is survival. Evolution there. It's survival of the Jesusist. Um, yeah. No, I talk about Jesus. You do? Yeah. Are you a Christian yourself? Uh, not exactly. Are I'm you? not an atheist, You're but not an atheist? I'm not an atheist. But I'm not, I don't buy any of the claims to special revelation of Jews, Christians, or Muslims. Is the Bible true or not? I would say not entirely. So, then not at all? Uh, there are the, moments no, of accuracy. There, no, there, there are no, flashes it's all of or nothing. It's all or nothing. Uh, yeah. At, at least you've come to some of a Christian. I'm a Christian. Yes, okay? I understand that. I don't care who knows it. I know that we're under attack and we have no power in America anymore. Right. <laughs> but I'm not going to let you attack Jesus. Okay. Okay. Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus, Son of God. Well, that idea, it's not clear that that was even believed during Jesus' life. And it's not clear that he said the things he's best remembered for, like talked about a love that crosses national bounds. I actually think Wait, that... He didn't talk about love? What are you talking about? He talked about... Love thy neighbor he as talked myself. About love your neighbor. The question is who your neighbor was. I think he was talking mainly about, about Israelites. I think it was the Apostle Paul who carried the, the idea of love across national bounds because he was building an international church in the Roman Empire. And so I think that's where that yeah, idea comes... Jesus told him to. He saw on the road That's what the Bible says, but the Gospels were written after Paul preached, and I think they absorbed some of those ideas and then attributed them to Jesus. No, uh, listen, let, we're, we're getting off track by you being wrong. Um, <laughs> but what do you mean? What do you mean by evolve? What, if, if God, you say that God is evolving, uh, well, our idea of God is evolving right. toward a better God. I think there has been growth on balance. I think all three Abrahamic religions have shown their ability to help God grow into a more constructive God that helps hold the social system together. And that's good news because right now we have a global social system that needs to be held together. And uh, it's good that God has it in him and that these religions can help God move toward a level of kind of tolerance and compassion that would help hold the system so together. You, and that's you, my you hope. think that all three religions are moving toward greater tolerance? They have shown the ability to do that in the past. Do you have any cartoons of Muhammad in here? I, you know, we, we discussed that with the publisher and decided against okay, it. You could, really, you could really move some books only for bonfires that if was, you did that. That was the upside. Of, yeah, but what we decided against but it. But if, if the evolution of God is that our idea of God is changing, then God doesn't actually exist. He's just an idea. Uh, well, the original idea was an illusion. The illusion has evolved. It's possible that... The original that idea was an illusion? I'm talking back in hunter-gatherer days. You would agree that those, 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 those were illusions, right? Uh, Their no, gods were illusions. They were, were false gods. So they evolve into the god you know and love. Yes. Uh, and, and I think there's enough evidence in human history of, of direction, that there may be a larger purpose at work, a moral direction of, of, of people making moral progress and religion assisting that, pro that, that, that process. Yeah, our, that, our, our religion a, tells us what to do that, and what not to do. That's that, how we have morality. It does that. It is from God. Anyway, I, only from God. I think there could be a larger purpose unfolding on the planet, so I don't rule out the possible existence of some God, but I, I, I don't believe in any of these three religions. In a specific way. I'll pray I'll for you. Okay. Thank you. Robert Wright, the book is fascinating.
On Eve's very first day, Adam had explained to her the rules of the garden just the way God had explained them to him. He had lifted his head up and had made his back stiff. He had spoken the way a radio broadcaster from the 1940s would. Another kind of woman, someone softer than Eve, might have found this charming. He explained that except for the tree of knowledge, every tree in the garden was theirs to eat from. I am a fan of the pear, Adam said. It is not unlike an apple whose head craves God. Tell me more about this tree of knowledge, said Eve. She enjoyed the sound of it, the tree of knowledge. It sounded very poetic. There's not much to tell, said Adam. If we eat from it, we will die. From then on, Eve talked about the tree of knowledge all the time. It was tree of knowledge this and tree of knowledge that. It's like it wasn't a tree at all, but a movie star. Sometimes, she would just stand by the tree and stare at it. It was on such an occasion that she met the snake. When Eve first caught sight of him, she brought her hand to her mouth and gasped. She had seen some repulsive animals in her day. A booby that percolated her vomit to just beneath her tonsils, a dingo that instilled in her a sublime sense of nature's cruelty, and a death watch beetle that filled her with existential dread. But still, there was something about the snake that made her realize in a flash that the world was anywhere from 60 to 80 percent oilier than she would have ever imagined. Hi, said the snake. In the mood for some fruit of knowledge? It's fruity. We were told not to eat from that tree, or else we would die, said Eve. Die? What an ignorant thing to say, said the snake, all chewing on a blade of grass in the side of his mouth. If there is an escape hatch from paradise, then it isn't really paradise, is it? The snake made interesting points. That appealed to Eve. He could see he was making an impression. All I'm saying is to give it a try. Many things will be made immediately clear to you once you partake. I could talk about it all day and you still won't get it. You have a right to at least try it, right? I'm not saying go out and eat an entire fruit. Have a nibble. A nibble isn't really eating, is it? Eve found arguing semantics exhilarating. She looked at the tree. The way the sun shined through its leaves was beautiful. Everything seemed to point to nibble the fruit. Then the snake said, Think about it. Does God want companions who can think for themselves, or does he want a bunch of lackeys and yes-men? Wouldn't God want a few surprises? It would seem to me that God's telling you not to eat the fruit was just a test to see if you could think for yourselves, to see if you could exist as equals to God. The day you taste the fruit is the day God will no longer be lonely. At least give it a lick. Eve looked at the fruit, then she looked at the snake. Then, slowly, she parted her lips and pushed out her tongue, all wet and warm and uncertain. She ran its tip along the smooth flesh of the fruit. The snake smiled. Has anyone died? He asked. Now take a tiny little nibble, just a speck, just a see. The fruit was squishy and tart. She smushed it around in her mouth. She squinted her eyes. It was a bit like trying on new glasses. It was a bit like an amyl nitrate popper. It was a bit like a big wet kiss on the lips right at first when you weren't sure if you wanted to be kissed or not. She felt a thousand little feet kicking at her uterus. The idea of her own nudity, as well as Adam's, had always felt more like a Nordic co-ed health spa thing. Now, with the fruit of knowledge, it felt more like a Rio de Janeiro carnival thing. Her breasts felt like water balloons filled with blueberry jam and birds. Her nipples were like lit matchsticks. Her thighs, the way they swished against each other, were like scissors cutting through velour. With her lips still glistening in Tree of Knowledge fruit juice, she ran off to find Adam. The snake watched her as he chewed on his slimy blade of grass. And as she receded into the distance, he thought something along the lines of, Now that's what I'm talking about. Kiss me, Adam, said Eve. Taste my lips. Adam, like any lummox truly worth his salt, could smell the minutest trace of knowledge coming his way, and thus he knew how to avoid it like the plague. But yet, there was also this. Eve had never sought him out in the middle of the day before just to kiss him. It felt like a very lucky thing. 
When he took her in his arms, he told her that he loved her with his whole entire heart. He closed his eyes tightly and brought his lips to hers. Then he squinted. Then it started to rain, and Eve began to cry. During the darkest days ahead, with the fratricides and whatnot, Adam would often think back to his brief time in Eden. As he became an old man, he would talk about the garden more and more. A couple of times he had even tried to find his way back there, but he very soon became lost. He didn't try too hard anyway. He didn't want to bother God any more than he already had. When Adam met someone that he really liked, he would say, I so wish you could have been there. It didn't seem fair to him that he was the one that got to be in Eden. This sunset isn't bad, he'd say, but the sunsets in Eden, they burned your nose hairs, they made your ears bleed. He couldn't even explain it right. When you ate the fruit in Eden, it was like eating God, he would say, and God was delicious. When you wanted him, you just grabbed him. Now when he ate fruit, he can only taste what was not there. But it wasn't all bad. After Eden, Eve became much gentler with Adam. After getting them both cast out, she decided to try as hard as she could to give Adam her love. She knew it was the very least she could do. She sometimes even wondered if that was why God had sent the snake to her in the first place. Adam would tell his grandkids, his great-grandkids, and his great-great-grandkids about how he and Nana Eve had spent their early days in a beautiful garden, naked and frolicking, and the kids would say, Ew! The children would swarm into the house like a carpet of ants. The youngest ones would head straight for Adam, lifting his shirt to examine his belly for the umpteenth time. They smoothed their hands across his flesh and marveled. Where's Grandpa's belly button? They all asked. He stared at the children. They were all his children. And as they slid their little hands across his blank stomach, he wondered what it was like to be a kid. Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles, including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend they have The Heavy Hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, but my personal favorites are like Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, and America the Audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL. That's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook. Audiblepodcast.com slash best. Richard Dawkins is suggesting so. He's the author of the blockbusting, uh, blockbuster bestseller, The God Delusion, The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmakers, uh, The Blind Watchmaker. Uh, uh, all three of those I've actually read. <laughs> and, uh, and also the former professor of science or the understanding of science at Oxford College, Oxford University, and a, and a fellow at the New College. He has a new book out. It is called The Greatest Show on Earth. And the evidence for evolution, it's, uh, I'm holding it up for those of you watching the video camera. And uh, just a brilliant, brilliant book and a brilliant, um, uh, brilliantly illustrated as well. Dr. Dawkins, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You, uh, in this book, build an absolutely compelling case for evolution. Uh, and, and, it, and it seems, frankly, that that shouldn't even be necessary right now. Uh, you 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 also go to the to the uh, to the extreme, I guess, of suggesting that those who deny the evidence of evolution in its varieties. I mean, you know, we could get into Gould's punctuated evolution versus Darwin's slow or whatever, but that that um, that they are the, the moral equivalent of Holocaust deniers. You want to riff on that for a moment? Well, I, I wouldn't have said the moral equivalent. I only drew the comparison between two sorts of history deniers. Holocaust deniers are morally 
um, I can't think of a strong enough word, um, re reproachworthy. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, I, I wasn't wishing to suggest that um, evolution deniers are in the same moral class as that. They are, however, history deniers. Both of them are history deniers. Both of them deny manifest palpable facts of history. That's the only comparison that I wish to make. Are there not... To, to, to just push on that for a moment, are there not consequences to denying evolution that lead to arguably the deaths of perhaps even hundreds of millions of persons? The, uh, the anti-science strain that is associated with the denial of, of uh, evolution, the creationists, is also associated with an anti-research strain, an anti, an anti, uh, even ult ultimately in many cases public health, certainly anti-birth uh, control, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it is true that the same people who, who deny evolution, who are history deniers in that sense, also tend to be the same people who try to stop stem cell research, who try to promote abstinence only birth control, um, and who are probably responsible for, as you say, millions of deaths from AIDS in places like Africa. It's not, however, specifically uh, creationism that leads to the death from AIDS. It is the same kind of people who, who do, but I don't think you could actually blame creationism itself for that. Mm -hmm. mm. I, I would. <laughs> I, yeah, apparently, you're not going to walk out on the, on the edge of that limb, but I will. I'll tell you, I, I, because I have these folks on this show, and I debate them, and they are operating out of a level of, of absolute intellectual ignorance and emotional certainty that is startling. And what is even more startling is how aggressive they are at promoting this, and frankly, how much money some of them have behind them. Yeah. And and they, you know, I've growing up, I always noticed that the the, the people who seemed the most evangelical around me were the most at the at the end of the day were actually the most insecure about their religious beliefs and it was almost like they felt if they could convert five people that that five times validated their belief and if they could convert 50 people that 50 times validated it and at some point they would have converted enough people that they would have really validated their belief and what i think is extraordinary about your book richard dawkins the greatest show on earth is that you're not asserting a belief system, you're laying out the evidence. It's not, I would not put you in the category of an evangelist. And, and I think that the media has tried to do that. I think the creationists try to do yeah. that. And, and could you draw the distinction between yourself as a scientist, a professor of science, and the author of a book that's taking on essentially evangelists and evangelism? Yes, I mean, uh, you're quite right. Uh what my book does is to set out the evidence, and the evidence I think anybody who actually reads it objectively will agree is completely convincing. So I don't have to evangelize. It's only necessary for me to lay out the evidence. I think you're right, by the way, about that insecurity. Um, the sort of attacks that I get uh, are almost never, I think literally never, attacks on anything that I've, any argument that I've actually made. They're never a, a counter-argument. It's always an attack on me being strident or shrill or arrogant or something of that sort. Never, oh, well, when you said so-and-so, you were wrong because, and then yeah. tried to set out an argument. There is no argument against, and so they have to resort to using words like strident. Yeah, I find the same thing in the realm of politics, that, you know, occasionally there are people who will debate me on the political issues. Uh, God bless them. But uh, the email that I get then from their support of the people who, who uh, you know, are, are, are the far right, basically, that I debate uh, against, uh, their supporters then tend to just send death threats. <laughs> you know, it is, it's, like, uh, it's like, you know, let's not talk about the issues. Let's just, you know. So in any case, you're, in your book, uh, Richard Dawkins, we're talking with Richard Dawkins, the new book, The Greatest Show on Earth, an absolutely brilliant case for for evolution. Talk to us a, a, a little bit about the different strains of evolutionary theory and how the, the, the concept of evolution itself has evolved. Well, in Darwin's time, Darwin talked of, of the survival of the fittest a little bit later than the origin of species. He talked about the struggle for existence. It was all about um, struggling within species for survival and reproduction. 
How it's evolved since then has been by the injection of genetics. Nowadays, we look at evolution from a genetic point of view, which Darwin didn't. Uh, he didn't really know any, any genetics. Uh, nobody did, except Mendel. Well, he had Mendel's square, but that was... Um, but, yeah. but Mendel wasn't really known about by many people in those days. Yeah. So nowadays, the way we look at it is to say that a species is a gene pool, a lot of genes that are kind of being mixed up mm. by sexual reproduction within the species, and some genes are better at surviving than others in the gene pool. And the way in which genes are good at surviving is by building individual bodies that are good at surviving and good at reproducing. So when you look at an individual jackal or camel or lion or kangaroo, whatever it is, what you're looking at is a machine that's been built by the genes of its ancestors showing themselves in this individual itself, built to be good at surviving and good at reproducing, which is why they succeeded in being ancestors and in passing on those very same genes. Right. When I read your book, The Selfish Gene, uh, it must have been about a decade ago that that came out, um, the, the, the one thing that, had I had an opportunity to speak to you at that time, and I do now, so I will, um, that bothered me was that there was very little emphasis on cooperation. Uh, a, a human body is, a, is an amazing uh, example of cooperation. You know, when, when an individual organ just tries to take over or sell, yes. the cells we call it cancer. Yes. And uh, there was so much emphasis on the selfish and not enough on the cooperation. Uh, no. You want to, in the, in the little less than a minute that we have left, yes. you want to... No, that, that's not quite right. Um, it, there is an awful lot of cooperation. It's very important. The, the point is that selfish genes give rise to cooperative individuals, and in particular, enormous cooperation within the individual body. As you say, cells are massively cooperating to build a body, and even bodies cooperate with each other in social groups. Right. It's selfish genes that lie at the, at the root of it. Selfish genes build cooperative bodies. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Bucket of Rags is this year's must-have Christmas item. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Area retailers are scrambling today after a new consumer poll made it clear that a bucket of rags will be this year's hot Christmas gift. Target Vice President Jeffrey DeSalt has ordered T-shirts, towels, and bedding to be shredded and stuffed into buckets to keep up with the rapidly growing demand. Well, we've known for a long time that people have been pretty enthusiastic about uh, these rags, and uh, what has set the, the world on fire here is the addition of the bucket. Tied for second in this year's Christmas Pole, Hannah Montana posters, and road flares. Well, Redland for the Onion Radio News. President, Mr. Obama's trip abroad has generally brought out the unhinged among the president's critics. The troubled conservative Washington Times newspaper, for example, allowed their editor emeritus Wesley Pruden to assess President Obama's trip abroad this way, quote, Mr. Obama, unlike his predecessors, likely knows no better. It's no fault of the president that he has no natural instinct or blood impulse for what the America of the 57 states is about. <laughs> 
He was sired by a Kenyan father, born to a mother attracted to men of the third world, and reared by grandparents in Hawaii, a paradise far from the American mainstream. That was published in an actual newspaper. On an actual cable TV channel, host Glenn Beck assessed democratic efforts at health reform with equal intellectual rigor. America has spoken clearly, consistently. We are, excuse this analogy, but I feel like it's true. We're the young girl saying, no, no, help me. And the government is Roman Polanski. From the same network, another host, Bill O'Reilly, couldn't help himself either, calling into Mr. Beck's radio program with this warning uh, to the Democratic Speaker of the House. I think people, when they figure out how, how badly they're going to get hurt in the next few years, there's going to be a Tea Party on taxes, and it's going to get nasty. Nancy Pelosi's going to be bobbing up and down in the Boston Harbor. And then there's this, a biblical quote making the rounds in anti-Obama circles, as reported this week in the Christian Science Monitor. Pray for President Obama, Psalm 109, verse 8. What's Psalm 109, verse 8? Well, it reads... Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his days be few. Uh, it's followed immediately uh, by another verse. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And don't forget, that sentiment is now being merchandised on bumper stickers, on mouse pads, on teddy bears, on aprons, framed tiles. Those are nice. Keepsake boxes, T-shirts. Let his days be few. <laughs> How cute on a teddy bear. Is anybody else creeped out by this? Joining us now is Frank Schaefer, whose father, Francis Schaefer, helped shape the evangelical movement in the United States. Mr. Schaefer grew up in the religious far right. He's the author of Patience with God, Faith for People Who Don't Like Religion or Atheism. Mr. Schaefer, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. This is such strong language in secular terms about President Obama. Can you tell me if this means something less threatening to people hearing this in a biblical context? No, actually, it means something more threatening. I think the, the situation that I find genuinely frightening right now is that you have a ramping up of biblical language, language from the anti-abortion movement, for instance, death panels and this sort of thing. And what it's coalescing into is branding Obama as Hitler, as they have already called him, as something foreign to our shores. We're reminded of that. He's born in Kenya. As brown, as black, above all, as not us. He, he is Sarah Palin's not a real American. But now it turns out that he joins the ranks of the unjust kings of ancient Israel, unjust rulers to which all these biblical allusions uh, are directed, who should be slaughtered, if not by God, then by just men. So there's a direct parallel here with Timothy McVeigh's T-shirt on the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, in which he said that the tree of liberty had to be watered occasionally by the blood of tyrants. And that quote we saw again at a, at a, at a meeting at which Obama was present, uh, being carried on a placard by someone carrying a loaded weapon. What we're looking at right now is two things going on. We see the evangelical groups that I talk about in my new book, Patience with God, enthralled by an apocalyptic vision that I go into in some detail there. They represent the millions of people who have turned the Left Behind series into bestsellers. Most of them are not crazy, they're just deluded. But there is a crazy fringe to whom all these little messages uh, that have been pouring out of Fox News, now on a bumper sticker, talking about doing away with Obama, asking God to kill him. Really, this is trawling for assassins, and this is serious business. It's un-American, it's unpatriotic, and it goes to show that the religious right, the Republican far right, have coalesced into a group that truly want American revolution. And if it turns out to be blood in the streets and death, so be it. This is not funny stuff anymore. Uh, they cannot be dismissed as just crazies on the fringe. It only takes one. You know, look at the Boston Globe article a few weeks ago saying that the threat level faced by the Secret Service has gone up 400 percent, higher than any other time in 52 years for any president, Democrat or Republican. These are no jokes. 
Uh, and as I talk about in, in Patience with God, if you trace these origins back to this paranoid, deluded evangelical group, of which me and my father, sadly, were not only members but leaders in the 70s and 80s, the foot soldiers that people like Dick Armey and others are using now to push their political agenda to undo health care are also people that have within their ranks people such as the person who murdered Dr. Tiller and killed three police officers in Pittsburgh because they thought Obama would take away their guns. This bumper sticker simply says to them, it's open season. And to be clear, I mean, over the top political criticism is as American as apple pie. And uh, an incredibly intense criticism has been levied against George W. Bush and against every president that's gone before him in modern times. But you're saying that there's essentially a religious inflection in the most extreme of the commentary against Obama that's sort of, that's operating on a religious level. That's a, that's a signal to yeah. a religiously mo minded audience. Absolutely. Look, this is the American version of the Taliban. The Taliban quotes the Koran, and Al-Qaeda quotes certain voice, verses in the Koran, in or out of context, calling for jihad and bloody war and the curse of Allah on infidels. This is the Old Testament biblical equivalent of calling for holy war. Now, most Americans will just see the bumper sticker and smile and think that it's facetious. Unfortunately, there are 22 million Americans or so who call themselves super conservative evangelicals. Of this, a small minority uh, might be violent, but the general atmosphere here is really getting heated. And what surprises me is that responsible, if you can put it that way, Republican leadership and the editors of some of these Christian magazines, et cetera, et cetera, do not stand up in holy horror and denounce this. You know, they're always asking, where is the Islamic leadership denouncing terrorism? Why aren't the moderates speaking out. Well, I challenge the folks who I used to work with that I talk about in my book, Patience with God, and I would just say to them, where the hell are you? This is not funny anymore. And be it on your head if something happens to our president, if you are going to go around supporting and not speaking out against this stuff. It's not just a question of who's doing it. The bigger question is, where are the people speaking out again against these things? I don't hear those voices raised in the evangelical fundamentalist community. And until I do, I, and my opinion is they're culpable. And I, one last thing on this. I think it points up the fact that Obama's supporters, of which I have been one since he began running, had better start speaking up in support of him and not sniping at him all the time because he's not moving towards change as fast as we'd like in every area. This is serious stuff. The chips are down. He has real enemies. Some of them are violent. And as far as I'm concerned, it's time to support our president, stand with him, and, and, and not only wish him the best, but as a believing Christian myself, pray for his safety uh, in the face of these religious maniacs who, who every day, you know, one time I was on your show a while back and they were talking about, is he the Antichrist? Now they're saying he's an unjust ruler and they're asking God to strike him down. There are not very many steps left on this insane path. You know, we get those emails all the time saying, God, I really wish you wouldn't say that, right, about religion. But we got to agree to disagree on that one. And that, that happens all the time. And uh, it's like when I have, it's, if I have Christian friends, Muslim friends, Jewish friends, and they really believe, it's not like I eliminate them. I'm like, oh, that's it. You can't be my friend. But what if they're Hindu? They're gone. Oh, well, obviously they're Hindu. Hindus and Buddhists. <laughs> Dismissed out of hand. All right. Okay, so like friends, you agree on some things and disagree on some things. What can you do, right? That's true. That's true. Right. So, but I, I love that story. And by the way, you know, so he's a Christian pastor who's trying to help the poor yeah. by getting them health insurance. Actually, the conservatives should love him. Right? They should. Because he's doing charity, right? Yeah. 
and he's trying to handle it without the government. But he, but he also because the government won't help. But he, he also might be enjoying his life, <laughs> and so if he's having a good time, it's suspect. Right, and but and he's a pastor doing liberal causes, and as we talked about yesterday on the show, uh, this website Conservapedia is trying to do a new version of the Bible where they edit out all the liberal parts of the Bible. Beyond ridiculous. I mean, I, I grew up Catholic, mm-hmm. which I'm sure a lot of people out there, oh, it's whatever. But And I kind of slowly lost my belief, like, from teenager through my 20s and stuff, to the point now I'm like, you know, no, not really. But, I mean, I grew up on it, and when you read the New Testament, I mean, even if you say, okay, this man is not divine, because he never really comes out in the Bible and goes, yeah, dude, I'm Jesus Christ. Like, you know, divine. He never really says that. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that either. No, he doesn't say that. But if you just look at him as a person and what he did, and, you know, to read the books of the Bible that are written, you know, closest to, at least in our modern Bible, closest to the, by the people who might have been there, like the book of John, there's nothing in the Republican Party platform that, like, jives with the book of John. Well, that's why it's got to be edited out, Wes. It just, I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, if you look, if you look at what Christ did in, just in terms of a political sense, it's like, you know, the story of the Pharisees or something. It's, it would be the idea of somebody, the equivalent, walking into the trading floor at Wall Street today and, like, unplugging all the machines and screaming and yelling at everybody and then kicking their butts out the door. Like, nah. It's not like a really strong capitalist thing. At all. <laughs> Not even close. Obviously, almost the exact opposite as Michael Moore argues in his movie Capitalism. Uh, and imagine if Jesus Christ actually walked into the New York Stock Exchange, pulled the plug, and started pushing people and, out the and door. What, and what pissed him off the most, what pissed Jesus off the most, I guess, according to the book, was hypocrisy. Like the people who would go to temple and act all high and holy because they had a good seed or they act all pious in public. He had no respect at all for those people. He is exactly the he guy. He couldn't that, stand those people. In the current day America, he's exactly the guy that Republicans would despise. And he would hate them. Man, <laughs> he would go to town on them. He'd be kicking their asses up and down the media channels. <laughs> yeah? Well, <laughs> I love the idea of like Sean Hannity debating Jesus Christ. What would Jesus do? He would totally smack Sean Hannity down. In a heartbeat. He'd start with him, right? I mean, if he's the guy in the book of John. Right. And look. If that's who he is. And there's. Or who he was. There's a lot of books. If he existed. Right. And there's a lot of questions. But uh, but look, like I always say, read the Bible. Okay. I'm the first guy to say that. One, because I think that, you know, you get a better sense of all all the popular myths out there. Okay. As to what did happen, didn't happen. What's actually in the Bible. But then on a political front, it helps you. If you're a Christian, uh, you know, if you read it, you know that what the Republicans say is Christianity is nowhere near the truth. Not even close. Not even close. I mean, not even kind of close. They've probably done more to damage Christianity in the last 20 years than really anything in the last 200, at least in the U.S. And it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, and they do the exact opposite of what they say all but the time. But you, you get on people. See, I won't get on people for believing. Like, when mm-hmm. I, I'm not a believer, but I spend a lot of my time driving around the country with this 65-year-old guy from Canada mm-hmm. who used to, you know, put up cell phone towers in Angola and smuggle stuff to missionaries, and he's like hardcore Christian. But he's not a holier-than-thou type or anything like that. He's He's... Just the exact kind of person you would expect someone to be if they, like, lived it instead of talked about it. You know, let, let me just say one quick thing about that before we move on to the news of the day. I, 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 lo- I mean, this is going to sound a little much, but I'm serious. I love believing. Like, let me give you a, a, a sense of it, okay? I'm in Memphis, and a, a guy is driving me from the airport to the hotel, right? And he talks about how he found God and stopped drinking and how it saved his life. So, how do you not love that guy? I mean, he explains how much God helped him, right? I don't want to take away his faith, and and I actually don't have any problem with faith, even on an intellectual level, right? Uh, but I, my problem is with the guys who are holier than thou, that are fundamentalists, that are you know that say no, everything in the Bible is true, but except for the parts I don't like, right? Dude, how about the right. fact that there's a new and an old testament, and the whole idea of the New Testament is that all that stuff you read about in the Old Testament, 
Right. And so I don't like the, the hypocrites and, and the fundamentalists and the literalists, right? And, and I have no problems with the believers. But the reason I get on religion, and, and a lot of people don't get this, is because I just don't think it's true. It's not. No, I'm no, not, I, and, and I don't it's, think it's true either. But so what I'm is, not trying to offend people. That's not my aim, right? I'm just trying to tell them, which is what I do on the show all the time, what I think is right. And I don't think it's right. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm qualified to even talk about whether God no, no, exists. No, God may exist, but so may the flying spaghetti monster. Right. No, but I'm not even against the idea of God existing. I'm against these particular religious texts because I don't think they're true, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how to say that without offending people. You no, see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I always think it's amazing when people who believe in religion but don't believe in evolution can't see the very clear evolution of religion. <laughs> that's ironic. As an institution. It, right. it always amazes me. I mean, there is no Satan, you know, in the Old Testament. In the Torah, there's no Satan. Right. doesn't exist. Right. That was an idea that came out of Zoroastrianism, which was kind of popular around the time that Christianity came. They're like, oh, yeah, let's use some of that. Yeah, it's called shaitan. Yeah, right. Let's use some of that. Let's get some shaitan in here. <laughs> right. Mix it up. And, and when you read the history of it, I mean, it's, you see how all the mythology poured into what became our religious text. And uh, you know, people say, "Oh, look, Jenk, look, the New Testament amended the Old Testament," as you said. Well, you know what's in the Old Testament? Um, a man shall not lie with a man, another man. Okay, so I guess that's out, right? Uh, Genesis is in the Old Testament, so I guess that's out, right? Yeah. So, but then when you get into these discussions, then people's heads start to explode. Well, because it's like you, people think you have to either take all of it totally seriously, or none of it totally seriously. And a lot of it is like, you know, if you think back to who our ancestors were and everything else, they just they they couldn't explain physically the way things work. I mean, we can barely do it now. We don't know for sure what the nature of the universe is. Not even close, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, and so they come up with stories for it. I mean, you want to know why there's a flood story? Because agricultural societies always live near rivers. And guess what happens to rivers? They flood. Of course! So, yeah, everybody's got a flood story. You know, it's like, and they wrap it up in the mythology. But people can never really go back and say, yeah, my ancestors, they were monkeys, man. They didn't know what they were talking about. Like, no one can quite do that. So yeah. you, kinda, you have to give it a nod. Yeah, I mean, look. Culturally, at least. It's absurd that we still believe in things that people came up with thousands of years ago because they literally didn't know any better. They, Not at all. Yeah, they didn't know that the earth revolves around the sun. They, they didn't know how people got pregnant. Okay. <laughs> they didn't know the earth was round. They didn't know anything. So they came up with stories. And bless their hearts, they were fun and interesting stories. They stuck around for an amazingly long period of time. But to still believe those stories, literally. And to really think you should be killing people or hurting people because of those stories? That's the part really? that really gets me. And that's really? where I get emotional about it. You know, whether it's the wars that we start, you know, whether it's the, you know, in the U.S. or whether it's in the Muslim world, uh, or whether it's on an individual level where they go and, you know, do the female circumcisions or the stonings and the honor killings and on and on It's it ridiculous. Goes. It would be like somebody going out and murdering someone in a hundred years, like over C-3PO or Luke Skywalker, and who is better. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's not who's better. It's well, that's, or who, that's... whose path are they following? Right. Uh, or did C-3PO really say that, or did, did he, he not really say, say it? And or was it? And they'll have different interpretations of it. No, that's the other one. That's R2D2. R2D2. Need to work on your geek a little bit. Thanks for listening, everybody. So this is a sad moment. This is going to be the last episode before a couple of weeks break due to my trip to Europe. Of course, I've been mentioning that I'll be going to Copenhagen for the international climate talks. And good news just came over the wire that Barack Obama has actually changed his schedule. If you hadn't heard already, he's changed his schedule so that instead of arriving on December 9th, I believe... As he originally planned, he'll actually be attending the last day of the conference, which is the same day that other heads of state will be there, which is an extremely good sign. Just, you know, it's hard to read the tea leaves exactly, but it's much better that he be there on the last day than 
during the first week of the convention. Let's let's just put it that way. So that's exciting news. Now, as I've said, I'll be attending the conference in Copenhagen with my boss and we'll be reporting. Basically, I'll be filming and recording audio to edit up as we go around the conference, interviewing everyone we can find that we think is interesting, cutting it up into very small pieces, and then posting it online. If you want to follow everything we do, of course, we'll be reporting from the environmentalist and activist position, letting you know how the conference is going day to day from our perspective, not just from a straight up balanced news perspective. Visit earthbeatradio.org. That's where absolutely all of our material is going to be going. We will also be posting to Facebook and Twitter, all associated with Earthbeat. All the links are there on the website for you to find. I'll most likely be keeping you up to date on the best of the left Facebook and Twitter pages as well. So go ahead and follow those as well. And make sure you're up to date on all my adventures. So now, thanks to the magic of podcasting, this show is actually being released several days after I've already left for Europe. So I'm speaking to you from the past. And in my time, Barack Obama has effectively just given his major speech on Afghanistan. You know, it was a, it was a few days ago, but my news cycle and all the podcasts I listen to are basically just catching up to that and all the all of the comments about Afghanistan are really piling up right now. And I, I just wanted to use this moment to uh, to address a concern. You know, I, I actually only got one email about this, but I don't get that many emails. So I can safely say, you know, if I get one email about something, I can safely say that a large percentage of the emails I have received are addressing this issue. And that that's what happened this time. So someone wrote in, and you know what? I think I actually haven't even written them back yet, which is totally my bad, but it was a really valid point. And the guy wrote in and said, what about Afghanistan? Maybe even Iraq, like give us some war news. And my thoughts on that are, first of all, you're absolutely right. This show should have been covering Afghanistan better. And frankly, it, it was just difficult. There weren't that many people talking about Afghanistan that much. So it was easy for, you know, I'd hear someone talking about it. It would kind of come and go. It wouldn't strike me as particularly engrossing. It, 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 didn't, it didn't seem to meet that best of the left standard of a really good clip that, that should go into the show. And so I just ended up without any material on Afghanistan. So that's what happened in the past. And then, and secondly, I thought that by the very nature of this podcast, this is a reactionary show, just by its very nature. And you know what I mean. I, I'm using what other people say, so it's, it's difficult to pick my own topic to cover if it's not something that everyone's already talking about. So by nature, it's a reactionary show, and so I kind of have to wait for something big to happen in order to cover it. So now, the big Obama-Afghanistan speech has come and gone, and I'm just now getting to the point where I'm going to have enough clips to make a show out of it. And so I'm saying that it's coming. My apologies for not being able to cover this story and be right on top of it as it was happening. But hopefully you understand based on the reasons I've just given. The bottom line is understand I'm not ignoring it because I don't think it's a, a valid issue or something that deserves time on the show. So now I uh, just, of course, as I do uh, every show, want to thank a couple of members. Michael Z signed up for a full year membership on September 10th. Thank you, Michael. And James M signed up on October 22nd. Huge thanks to both of you guys. And of course, all of the members, as I say all the time, I couldn't do it without you guys. They are what make everything possible. And of course, for their efforts, they have access to the best of the left raw feed, which is the bonus feature I provide, which is all of the material that goes into the final nicely edited podcast, all of that material goes into the raw feed. And since a lot of the stuff that ends up in the show is originally from television, the raw feed actually gets it in its original video format. And then beyond getting all the clips that end up in the show, there's bonus material that never makes it in the show, which is of course only available to the members. So details on membership if you're interested, is at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. 
Now, of course, if you're interested in a little bit of bonus content, but not a whole lot of bonus content, there's always the iPhone and iPod Touch application. Every episode of the show gets one bonus clip appended to it, accessible only through the application or the members-only raw feed. So, that is it for today. Of course, you can support the show by telling five friends about it. I would love it if you told five friends. You can become a member for as little as a little bit less than $5 a month, which is, of course, an amazing deal. Leave five-star reviews for the podcast and the application in the iTunes store and vote this month and every month at Podcast Alley. If you want to send anything to us for any reason, our physical address, you can send it to Tomlinson at P.O. Box 3451, Washington, D.C., 20010. You can stay connected between shows by joining at twitter.com slash bestofleft and facebook.com slash bestofleft. Of course, that's where I'll be keeping everyone up to date on my adventures through Europe and the Copenhagen Conference. Links to the music and sources used in this and every episode are found in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, except for the next couple of weeks, thanks to the members and donors from bestofleft.com. Hi, my name is Mike. Could I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal, middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.